Welcome back to 1001 Stories from the Old West. This is your host, Kevin Sykes, welcoming you back to one more week of uniquely American adventure and history. We hope you enjoy tonight's story. Tonight, we'll be concluding The Passing of the Frontier by Emerson Howe. Over the past year, we have read seven preceding chapters, and these chapters 8 and 9 conclude the entire book. It's been a real pleasure to read Emerson Howe's work. And I hope you enjoy its conclusion. Chapter 8. The Cattle Kings It is proper now to look back yet again over the scenes with which we hitherto have had to do. It is after the railways have come to the plains. The Indians now are vanishing. The buffalo have not yet gone, but are soon to pass. Until the closing days of the Civil War, the northern range was a wide open domain, the greatest ever offered for the use of a people. None claimed it then in fee. None wanted it in fee. The grasses and the sweet waters offered accessible and profitable chemistry for all men who had cows to range. The land laws still were vague and inexact in application, and each man could construe them as he liked. The excellent homestead law of 1862, one of the few really good land laws that have been put on our national statute books, worked well enough so long as we had good farming lands for homesteading, lands of which a quarter section would support a home and a family. This same homestead law was the only one available for use on the cattle range. In practice, it was violated thousands of times. In fact, of necessity violated by any cattleman who wished to acquire sufficient range to run a considerable herd. Our great timber kings, our great cattle kings, made their fortunes out of the open contempt for the homestead law, which was designed to give all the people an even chance for a home and a farm. It made and lost America. Swiftly enough, here and there along the great waterways of the northern range, ranchers and their men filed claims on waterfronts. The dry land thus lay tributary to them. For the most part, the open lands were held practically under squatter right. The first cowman in any valley usually had his rights respected, at least for a time. These were the days of the open range. Fences had not yet come, nor had farms been staked out. From the south now appeared that tremendous and elemental force, most revolutionary of all the great changes we have noted in the swiftly changing west, the bringing in of thousands of horned kine along the northbound trails. The trails were hurrying from the Rio Grande to the upper plains of Texas and northward, along the north and south line of the frontier, that land which we have been seeking to understand. The Indian Wars had much to do with the cow trade. Indians were crowded upon the reservations, and they had to be fed, and fed on beef. Corrupt Indian agents made fortunes, and the beef ring at Washington, one of the most despicable lobbies which ever fattened there, now wrote its brief and unworthy history. In a strange way, corrupt politics and corrupt business affected the phases of the cattle industry as they had affected our relation with the Indians. More than once, a herd of some thousand beeves driven up from Texas on contract and arriving late in autumn was not accepted on its arrival at the Army Post. Some pet of Washington perhaps had his own herd to sell. All that could be done then would be to seek out a holding range. In this way, more and more, the capacity of the northern plains to nourish and improve cattle became established. Naturally, the price of cows began to rise. 
and naturally also the demand for open range steadily increased. There now began the whole complex story of leased lands and fenced lands. The frontier still was offering opportunity for the bold man to reap where he had not sown. Lands leased to the Indians of the civilized tribes began to cut large figure in the cow trade, as well as some figure in politics, until at length the thorny situation was handled by a firm hand at Washington. The methods of the East were swiftly overrunning those of the West. Politics and graft and pull, things hitherto unknown, soon wrote their hurrying story over all this newly won region from which the rifle smoke had scarcely yet cleared away. But every herd which passed north for delivery, of one sort or the other, advanced the education of the cowman. Whether of the northern or the southern ranges, some of the southern men began to start feeding ranges in the north, retaining their breeding ranges in the south. The demand of the great upper range for cattle seemed for the time insatiable. To the vision of the railroad builders, a tremendous potential freightage now appeared. The railroad builders began to calculate that one day they would parallel the northbound cow trail with iron trails of their own and compete with nature for the carrying of this beef. The whole swift story of all that development, while the westbound rails were crossing and crisscrossing the newly won frontier, scarcely lasted twenty years. Presently, we began to hear in the east of the Chisholm Trail and the Western Trail which lay beyond it, and of many smaller and intermingling branches. We heard of Ogallala in Nebraska, the Gomorrah of the range, the first great upper marketplace for distribution of cattle to the swiftly forming northern ranches. The names of the new rivers came upon our maps. Beyond the first railroads, we began to hear of the Yellowstone, the Powder, the Muscle Shell, the Tongue, the Bighorn, the Little Missouri. The wildlife, bold and carefree, coming up from the south now in a mighty surging wave, spread all over that new west which offered to the people of older lands a strange and fascinating interest. Everyone on the range had money. Everyone was independent. Once more it seemed that man had been able to overleap the confining limitations of his life and to attain independence, self-indulgence, ease and liberty. A chorus of Homeric, riotous mirth, as a land and laughter, rose up all over the great range. After all, it seemed that we had a new world left, a land not yet used. We were still young. A cry arose that there was land enough for all out west. And at first, the trains of white-topped wagons rivaled the crowded coaches westbound on the rails. In consequence, there came an entire readjustment of values. This country, but yesterday barren and worthless, now was covered with gold, deeper than the gold of California, or any of the old placers. New securities and new values appeared. Banks did not care much for the land as security. It was practically worthless without the cattle. But they would lend money on cattle at rates which did not then seem usurious. A new system of finance came into use. Side by side with the expansion of credits went the expansion of the cattle business. Literally, in hundreds of thousands, the cows came north from the exhaustless ranges of the lower country. It was a wild, strange day, but withal, it was the kindliest and most generous time, alike the most contented and the boldest time, in all the history of our frontiers. There never was a better life than that of the cowman who had a good range on the plains and cattle enough to stock his range. There never will be found a better man's country in all the world than that which ran from the Missouri 
up to the low foothills of the Rockies. The lower cities took their tribute of the northbound cattle for quite a time. Wichita, Coffeyville, and other towns of lower Kansas in turn made bids for prominence as cattle marts. Agents of the Chicago stockyards would come down along the trails into the Indian nations to meet the northbound herds and try to divert them to this or that market as a shipping point. The Kiowas and Comanches, not yet wholly confined to their reservations, sometimes took tribute, whether in theft or an open extortion of the herds laboring upward through the long, slow season. Trail cutters, herd combers, licensed or unlicensed hangers-on to the northbound throngs of cattle, appeared along the lower trails, with some reason occasionally, for in a great northbound herd there might be many cows included under brands other than those of the road brands registered for the drovers of that particular herd. Cattle thieving became an industry of certain value, rivaling in some locations the operations of the bandits of the placer camps. There was great wealth suddenly to be seen. The weak and the lawless, as well as the strong and the unscrupulous, set out to reap after their own fashion where they had not sown. If a grave here or there appeared along the trail or at the edge of the straggling town, it mattered little. If the gamblers and the desperados of the cow towns, such as Newton, Ellsworth, Abilene, and Dodge, furnished a man for breakfast day after day, it mattered little. For plenty of men remained, as good or better. The life was large and careless, and bloodshed was but an incident. During the early and unregulated days of the cattle industry, the frontier insisted on its own creed, its own standards, but all the time coming out from the east were scores and hundreds of men of exacter notions of trade and business. The enormous waste of the cattle range could not long endure. The toll taken by the thievery of the men who came to be called range rustlers made an element of loss which could not long be sustained by thinking men. As the vigilantes regulated things in the mining camps, so now, in slightly different fashion, the new property owners on the upper range established their own ideas, their own sense of proportion as to law and order. The cattle associations, the banding together of many owners of vast herds for mutual protection and mutual gain, were a natural and logical development. Outside of these, there was, for a time, a highly efficient corps of cattle range vigilantes, who shot and hanged some scores of rustlers. It was a frenzied life while it lasted, this lurid outburst, this last flare of the frontier. Such towns as Dodge and Ogallala offered extraordinary phenomena of unrestraint. But, fortunately, into the worst of these capitals of license came the best men of the new regime. And the new officers of the law, the agents of the vigilantes, the advance guard of civilization, now crowding on the heels of the wild men of the West. In time, the lights of the dance halls and the saloons and the gambling parlors went out one by one all along the frontier. By 1885, Dodge City, a famed capital of the cow trade, which will live as long as the history of that industry is known, resigned its eminence and declared that from where the sun then stood, it would be a cow camp no more. The men of Dodge knew that another day had dawned, but this was after the homesteaders had arrived and put up their wire fences, cutting off from the town the holding grounds of the northbound herds. This innovation of barbed wire fences in the 70s had caused a tremendous alteration of conditions all over the country. It had enabled men to fence in their own waterfronts, their own homesteads. Casually, 
and at first without any objection filed by anyone, they had included in their fences many hundreds of thousands of acres of rangeland to which they had no title whatever. These men, like the large-handed cow barons of the Indian nations, who had had things much as they willed in a little unnoted realm of their own, had money and political influence, and there seemed still range enough for all. If a man wished to throw a drift fence here or there, what mattered? Up to this time, not much attention had been paid to the little fellow, the man of small capital who registered a brand of his own, and who, with a maverick here and there, and the natural increase, and perhaps a trifle of unnatural increase here and there, had proved able to accumulate, with more or less rapidity, a herd of his own. Now the cattle associations passed rules that no foreman should be allowed to have or register a brand of his own. Not that any foreman could be suspected, not at all, but the foreman who insisted on his old right to own a running iron and a registered brand was politely asked to find his employment somewhere else. Here, Mr. Howe adds a note. In the early days, a rancher by the name of Maverick, a Texas man, had made himself rich simply by riding out on the open range and branding loose and unmarked occupants of the free lands. Hence, the term Maverick was applied to any unbranded animal running loose on the range. No one cared to interfere with these early activities in collecting unclaimed cattle, Many a foundation for a great fortune was laid in precisely that way. It was not until the more canny days in the north that mavericks were regarded with jealous eyes. The large-handed and once generous methods of the old range now began to narrow themselves. Even if the little fella were able to throw a fence around his own land, very often he did not have land enough to support his herds with profit. A certain antipathy now began to arise between the great cattle owners and the small ones, especially on the upper range, where some rather bitter wars were fought. The cow kings accusing their smaller rivals of rustling cows, the small men accusing the larger operators of having for years done the same thing, and having grown rich at it. The cattle associations, thrifty and shifty, sending their brand inspectors as far east as the stockyards of Kansas City and Chicago, naturally had the whip hand of the smaller men. They employed detectives who regularly combed out the country in search of men who had loose ideas of mine and thine. All the time, the cow game was becoming stricter and harder. Easterners brought on the East's idea of property, of low interest, sure returns, and good security. In short, there was set on once more, as there had been in every great movement across the entire West, the old contest between property rights and human independence in action. It was now once more the frontier against the states, and the states were foredoomed to win. The barbed wire fence, which was at first used extensively by the great operators, came at last to be the greatest friend of the little fella on the range. The little fella, who, under the provisions of the Homestead Act, began to push west and to depart farther and farther from the protecting lines of the railways, could locate land and water for himself and fence in both. I've got the law back of me, was what he said, and what he said was true. Around the old cow camps of the trails and around the young settlements which did not aspire to be called cow camps, the homesteaders fenced in land. So much land that there came to be no place near any of the shipping points where the big herd from the south could be held. 
along the southern range, artificial barriers to the long drive began to be raised. It would be hard to say whether fear of Texas competition or of Texas cattle fever was the more powerful motive in the minds of ranchers in Colorado and Kansas. But the cattle quarantine laws of 1885 nearly broke up the long drive of that year. Men began to talk of fencing off the trails and keeping the northbound herds within the fences, a thing obviously impossible. The railroad soon rendered this discussion needless. Their agents went down to Texas and convinced the shippers that it would be cheaper and safer to put their cows on cattle trains and ship them directly to the ranges where they were to be delivered. And in time, the rails running north and south along the Staked Plains into the heart of the lower range began to carry most of the cattle. So ended the old cattle trails. What date shall we fix to the setting of the sun of the last frontier? Perhaps the year 1885 is as accurate as any. The time when the cattle trails practically ceased to bring north their vast tribute. But in fact, there is no exact date for the passing of the frontier. Its decline set in on what day the first lank Nestor from the States outspanned his sunburned team as he pulled up beside some sweet water on the rolling lands somewhere in the west and looked about him and looked again at the land map held in his hand. I reckon this is our land, mother, said he. When he said that, he pronounced the doom of the old frontier. And that concludes chapter 8. We'll return right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. The final chapter. Chapter 9. The Homesteader. His name was usually Nestor, or Little Fella, and it was the old story of the tortoise and the hare. The Little Fella was from the first destined to win. His steady advance, now on this flank, now on that, just back of the vanguard pushing westward, had marked the end of all our earlier frontiers. The same story was now being written on the frontier of the plains. But in the passing of this last frontier, the type of the land-seeking man, the type of the American, began to alter distinctly. The million dead of our cruel civil war left a great gap in the American population which otherwise would have occupied the West and Northwest after the clearing away of the Indians. For three decades, we had been receiving a strong and valuable immigration from the north of Europe. It was in great part this continuous immigration which occupied the farming lands of Upper Iowa, Minnesota, and the Dakotas. Thus, the population of the northwest became largely foreign. Each German or Scandinavian who found himself prospering in this rich new country was himself an immigration agency. He sent back word to his friends and relatives in the old world and these came to swell the steadily thickening population of the new. We have seen that the enterprising cattlemen had not been slow to reach out for such resources as they might. Perhaps at one time between 1885 and 1890, there were over 10 million acres of land illegally fenced in on the upper range by large cattle companies. This had been done without any color of law whatever. A man simply threw out his fences as far as he liked and took in range enough to pasture all the cattle that he owned. His only pretext was, I saw it first. For the nester who wanted a way through these fences out into the open public lands, he cherished a bitter resentment. And yet, the nester must in time win through, must eventually find the little piece of land which he was seeking. The government at Washington was finally obliged to take action. In the summer of 1885, acting under authorization of Congress, 
President Cleveland ordered the removal of all illegal enclosures and forbade any person or association to prevent the peaceful occupation of the public land by homesteaders. The president had already canceled the leases by which a great cattle company had occupied grazing lands in the Indian Territory. Yet, with even-handed justice, he kept the land boomers also out of these coveted lands, until the Dawes Act of 1887 allotted the tribal lands to the Indians in severalty and threw open the remainder to the impatient homeseekers. Waiting thousands were ready at the Kansas line, eager for the starting gun, which was to let loose a mad stampede of crazed human beings. It was always contended by the cowman that these settlers coming in on the semi-arid range could not make a living there, that all they could do was legally to starve to death some good woman. True, many of them could not last out in the bitter combined fight with nature and the grasping conditions of commerce and transportation of that time. The Western Canadian farmer of today is a cherished, almost petted being, but no one ever showed any mercy to the American farmer who moved out west. As always has been the case, a certain number of wagons has been seen passing back east, as well as the somewhat larger number steadily moving westward. There were lean years and dry years, hot years, yellow years, here and there upon the range. The phrase written on one disheartened farmer's wagon top, going back to my wife's folks, became historic. The railways were finding profit in carrying human beings out to the cow range just as once they had in transporting cattle. Indeed, it did not take the wiser railroad men long to see that they could afford to set down a farmer at almost no cost for the transportation in any part of the New West. He would, after that, be dependent upon the railroad in every way. The railroads deliberately devised the great land boom of 1886, which was more especially virulent in the state of Kansas. Many of the railroads had lands of their own for sale, but what they wanted most was the traffic of the settlers. They knew the profit to be derived from the industry of a dense population raising products which must be shipped, and requiring imports which must also be shipped. One railroad even offered choice breeding stock free upon request. The same road, and others also, preached steadily the doctrine of diversified farming. In short, the railroads, in their own interest, did all they could to make prosperous the farms or ranches of the West. The usual Western homestead now was part ranch and part farm, although the term ranch continued for many years to cover all the meanings of the farm of whatever sort. There appeared now in the new country yet another figure of the Western civilization, the land boomer. With his irrepressible and unregulated statements in regard to the value of these Western lands, these men were not always desirable citizens, although, of course, no industry was more solid or more valuable than that of legitimate handling of the desirable lands. Public spirit became a phrase now well known in any one of the scores of new towns springing up on the old cow range each of which had laid claims to be the future metropolis of the world. In any one of these towns, the main industry was that of selling lands or real estate. During the Kansas boom of 1886, the land boomers had their desks in the lobbies of banks, the windows of hardware stores, any place and every place offering room for a desk and a chair. Now also flourished apace the industry of mortgage loans. Eastern money began to flood the western plains, attracted by the high rates of interest. 
1886, the customary banking interest in western Kansas was 2% a month. It is easy to see that very soon a state of affairs as this must collapse. The industry of selling town lots far out in the cornfields and of buying unimproved subdivision property with borrowed money at usurious rates of interest was one riding for its own fall. Nonetheless, the little fellow kept on going out into the West. We did not change our land laws for his sake, and for a time he needed no sympathy. The Homestead Law, in combination with the Preemption Act and the Tree Claim Act, would enable a family to get a hold of a very sizable tract of land. The foundations of many comfortable fortunes were laid in precisely this way by thrifty men who were willing to work and willing to wait. It was not until 1917 that the old homestead law, limiting the settler to 160 acres of land, was modified for the benefit of the stock raiser. The stock raising homestead law, as it was called, permits a man to make entry for not more than 640 acres of unappropriated land, which shall have been designated by the Secretary of the Interior as stock raising land. Cultivation of the land is not required, but the holder is required to make permanent improvements to the value of a dollar and 25 cents an acre and at least one half of these improvements must be made within three years after the first date of entry in the old times the question of proof improving up was leniently considered a man would stroll down to the land office and swear solemnly that he had lived the legal length of time on his homestead whereas perhaps he had never seen it or no more than ridden across it Today, matters will be administered somewhat more strictly, for of all those millions of acres of open land in the West, there is almost none left worth the holding for farm purposes. Such dishonest practices were, however, indignantly denied by those who fostered the irrigation and dry farming booms, which made the last phase of exploitation of the old range. A vast amount of disaster was worked by the failure of numberless irrigation companies, each of them offering lands to the settlers through the medium of most alluring advertising. In almost every case, the engineers underestimated the cost of getting water on the land. Very often, the amount of water available was not sufficient to irrigate the land which had been sold to settlers. In countless cases, the district irrigation bonds, which were offered broadcast by eastern banks to their small investors, were hardly worth the paper on which they were written. One after another, these wildcat irrigation schemes, purporting to assure sudden wealth in apples, pears, celery, garden truck, cherries, small fruits, alfalfa, pecans, eucalyptus, or catalpa trees, anything you liked, went to the wall. Sometimes whole communities became straightened by the collapse of these overblown enterprises. The recovery was slow, though usually the result of that recovery was a far healthier and more stable condition of society. This whole question of irrigation and dry farming, this or that phase of the last scrambling, feverish settling on the lands, was sorely wasteful of human enterprise and human happiness. It was much like the spawning rush of the salmon from the sea. Many perish, a few survive. Certainly, there never was more cruel injustice done than that to the sober-minded eastern farmers, some of them young men in search of cheaper homes, who sold out all they had in the east and went out to the dry country to farm under the ditch, or to take up that still more hazardous occupation, successful sometimes, though always hard and always risky, dry farming on the benches which cannot be reached with irrigating waters. 
strangely changed was all the face of the cattle range by these successive and startling innovations. The smoke of many little homes rose now, scattered all over the tremendous country, from the Rockies to the edge of the shortgrass country, from Texas to the Canadian line. The cattle were not banished from the range, for each little farmer would probably have a few cows of his own, and in some fashion the great cowmen were managing to get in feed tracts of land sufficient for their purposes. There were land leases of all sorts which enabled the thrifty westerner who knew the inside and out of local politics to pick up permanently considerable tracts of land. Some of these ranches were held together as late as 1916. Indeed, there are some such old-time holdings still existent in the West, although far more rare than formerly was the case. Under all these conditions, the price of land went up steadily. Land was taken eagerly, which would have been refused with contempt a decade earlier. The parings and scraps and crumbs of the Old West were now fought for avidly. The need of capital became more and more important in many of the great land operations. Even the government reclamation enterprises could not open lands to the settler on anything like the old homestead basis. The water right cost money, sometimes 25 or $30 an acre. In some of the private reclamation enterprises, $50 an acre or even more. Very frequently, when the eastern farmer came out to settle on such a tract and to meet the hard, new, and expensive conditions of life on the semi-arid regions, he found that he could not pay out on the land. Perhaps he brought two or $3,000 with him. It usually was the industrial mistake of the land boomer to take from this intending settler practically all of his capital at the start. Naturally, when the new farmers were starved out and in one way or another had made other plans, the country itself went to pieces. That part of it was wisest, which did not kill the goose of the golden egg. The whole readjustment in agricultural values over the once measureless and valueless cow country was a stupendous and staggering thing. Now yet appeared another agency of change. The high, dry lands of many of the Rocky Mountain states had long been regarded covetously by an industry even more cordially disliked by the cattlemen than the industry of farming. The sheepman began to raise his head and to plan certain things for himself in turn. Once the herder of sheep was a meek and lowly man, content to slink away when ordered. The rider himself in the dry southwest once knew a flock of 6,000 sheep to be rounded up and killed by the cattlemen of a range into which they had intruded. The herders went with the sheep. All over that range the feud between the sheepmen and the cowmen was bitter and implacable. The issues in those quarrels rarely got into the courts, but were fought out on the ground. The old Wyoming deadline of the cowmen against intruding bands of Green River sheep made a considerable amount of history which was never recorded. The sheepmen at length began to succeed in their plans, themselves not paying many taxes, not supporting the civilization of the country, not building the schools or roads or bridges. They nonetheless claimed the earth and the fullness thereof. After the establishment of the great forest reserves, the sheepmen coveted the range thus included. It has been the governmental policy to sell range privileges in the forest reserves for sheep on a per capita basis. Like privileges have been extended to cattlemen in certain of the reserves. Also, the contact and the contest between the two industries of sheep and cows have remained. Of course, the issue even in this ancient contest is foregone. As the cowman has had to raise his cows under fence, so ultimately must the sheepman also bury his range in fee 
and raise his product under fence. The wandering bands of sheep belong nowhere. They ruin a country. It is a pathetic spectacle to see parts of the Old West in which the sheep steadily have been ranged. They utterly destroy all the game. They even drive the fish out of the streams and cut the grasses and weeds down to the surface of the earth. The denuded soil crumbles under their countless hooves, becomes dust, and blows away. They leave a waste, a desert, an abomination. There were yet other phases of change which followed hard upon the heels of our soldiers after they had completed their task of subjugating the tribes of the Buffalo Indians. After the homesteads had been proved up in some of the northwestern states, such as Montana and the Dakotas, large bodies of land were acquired by certain capitalistic farmers. All this new land had been proved to be exceedingly prolific of wheat, the new great land crop. The farmers of the northwest had not yet learned that no country long can thrive which depends upon a single crop. But the once familiar figures of the bonanza farms of the northwest the pictures of their long lines of reapers or self-binders, 20, 30, 40, and 50 machines, one after the other, advancing through the golden grain, the pictures of their innumerable stacks of wheat, the figures of vast mileage of their fences, the yet more stupendous figures of the outlay required to operate these farms, and the splendid totals of the receipts from such operations, these at one time were familiar and proudly presented features of the boom advertising in the upper portions of our black land belt, which lay just at the eastern edge of the old plains. There was to be repeated in this country something of the history of California. In the great valleys such as the San Joaquin, the first interests were pastoral, and the cowmen found a vast realm which seemed to be theirs forever. There came to them, however, the bonanza wheat farmers, who flourished there about 1875 and through the next decade. Their highly specialized industry boasted that it could bake a loaf of bread out of a wheat field between the hours of sunrise and sunset. The outlay in stock and machinery on some of these bonanza ranches ran into enormous figures. But here, as in all new wheat countries, the productive power of the soil soon began to decrease. Little by little, the number of bushels per acre lessened, until the bonanza farmer found himself with not half the product to sell which he had owned in the first few years of his operations. In one California town, at one time a bonanza farmer came in and covered three city blocks with farm machinery which had to be turned over to the bank, owning the mortgages of his land and plant. He turned in also all his mules and horses, and retired worse than broke from an industry in which he had at once made his hundreds of thousands. Something of this same story was to follow in the Dakotas. Presently, we heard no more of the Bonanza wheat farms, and a little later on, they were not. The one-crop country is never one of sound investing values, and a land boom is something of which to beware, always and always to beware. The prairie had passed, the range had passed, the illegal fences had passed, and presently the cattle themselves were to pass. That is to say, the great herds. As recently as five years ago, 1912, it was my fortune to be in the town of Bell Fork near the Black Hills, a region long accustomed to vivid history, whether of Indians, mines, or cows. At the time when the last of the great herds of the old industry thereabouts were breaking up, and to see, coming down to the cattle chutes to be shipped to the eastern stockyards, the last hundreds of the great Bell Fork herd, which was once numbered in the thousands. 
They came down out of the blue-edged horizon, threading their ways from the upper benches down across the dusty valley. The dust of their travel rose as it had twenty years earlier on the same old trail. But these were not the same cattle. There was not a longhorn among them. There has not been a longhorn on the range for many years. They were sleek, fat, well-fed animals, heavy and stocky, even of type, all either white faces or short horns. With them were some old-time cowmen, men grown gray in range work. Alongside the herds, after the ancient fashion of trailing cattle, rode cowboys who handled their charges with the same old skill. But even the cowboys had changed. These were without exception men from the east who had learned their trade here in the west. Here, indeed, was one of the last acts of the great drama of the plains. To many an observer there, it was a tragic thing. I saw many a cowman there the gravity on whose face had nothing to do with commercial loss. It was the old west, he mourned, and I mourned with him. Naturally, the growth of the great stockyards of the Middle West had an effect upon all the cattle-producing country of the West. Whether those cattle were bred in large or small numbers, the dealers of the stockyards, let us say, gradually evolved a perfect understanding among themselves as to what cattle prices ought to be at the eastern end of the rails. They have always pleaded poverty and explained the extremely small margin of profit under which they had operated. Of course, the repeated turnover in their business has been an enormous thing, and their industry, since the invention of refrigerator cars and the shipment of dressed beef in tins, has been one which has extended to all the corners of the world. The great packers would rather talk of byproducts than of these things. Always, they have been poor, so very poor. For a time, the railroads east of the stockyard cities of Kansas City and Chicago divvied up pro rata the dressed beef traffic. Investigation after investigation has been made of the methods of the stockyard firms, but thus far the law has not laid its hand successfully upon them. Naturally, of late years, the extremely high price of beef has made greater profit to the cattle raiser, but that man, receiving eight or ten cents a pound on the hoof, is not getting rich so fast as did his predecessor, who got half of it, because he is now obliged to feed hay and to enclose his range. Where once a half a ton of hay might have been sufficient to tide a cow over the bad part of the winter, the little fellow who fences his own range of a few hundred acres is obliged to figure on two or three tons, for he must feed his herd on hay through the long months of the winter. The ultimate consumer, of course, is the one who pays the freight and stands the cost of all this. Hence, we have the swift growth of American discontent with living conditions. There is no longer land for free homes in America. This is no longer a land of opportunity. It is no longer a poor man's country. We have arrived all too swiftly upon the ways of the old world, and today, in spite of our love of peace, we are in an old world's war. The insatiable demand of Americans for cheap lands assumed a certain international phase at the period lying between 1900 and 1913 or later. The years of the last great boom in Canadian lands the Dominion government, represented by shrewd and enterprising men able to handle large undertakings, saw with a certain satisfaction of its own the swift passing from the market of all the cheap lands of the United States. It was proved to the satisfaction of all that very large tracts of the Canadian plains also would raise wheat, quite as well as had the prairies of Montana or Dakota. The Canadian railroads, with lands to sell, began to advertise the wheat industry in Alberta and Saskatchewan. 
the Canadian government went into the publicity business on its own part. To a certain extent, European immigration was encouraged. But the United States really was the country most combed out for settlers for these Canadian lands. As by magic, millions of acres in western Canada were settled. The young American farmers of our near northwest were especially coveted as settlers because they knew how to farm these upper lands far better than any Europeans, and because each of them was able to bring a little capital of ready money into Canada. The publicity campaign waged by Canadians in our western states in one season took away more than 150,000 good young farmers resolved to live under another flag. In one year, the state of Iowa lost over $15 million of money withdrawn from bank deposits by farmers moving across the line into Canada. The story of these land rushes was much the same as it had been with us. Not all succeeded. The climatic conditions were far more severe than any which we had endured. And if the soil for a time in some regions seemed better than some of our poorest, at least there waited for the one crop man the same future which had been discovered for similar methods within our own confines. But the great Canadian land booms, carefully fostered and well-developed, offered a curious illustration of the tremendous pressure of all populations of the world for land and yet more land. In the year 1911, the writer saw, all through the Peace River Valley and even into the neighborhood of the Little Slave Lake, the advance guard of wheat farmers crowding out beyond the Canadian frontier into the covetous search for yet more cheap land. In 1912, I talked with a school teacher who herself had a homestead land in the Judith Basin of Montana, once sacred to cows, and who was calmly discussing the advisability of going up into the Peace River country to take up yet more homestead land under the regulations of the Dominion government. In the year 1913, I saw an active business done in town lots at Fort McMurray, 500 miles north of the last railroad of Alberta, on the ancient Athabasca waterway of the fur trade. Who shall state the limit of all this expansion? The farmer has ever found more and more land on which he could make a living. He is always taking land with which his predecessor has scornfully refused. If presently there shall come the news that the land boomer has reached the mouth of the Mackenzie River, as long ago he reached certain portions of the Yukon, if it shall be said that men are now selling town lots under the midnight sun, what then? We are building a government railroad of our own, almost within shadow of Mount McKinley in Alaska. There are steamboats on all the great subarctic rivers. Perhaps someday a powerboat will take us easily where I have stood, somewhat wearied, at the spot of the little bell tributary on the Porcupine, where a slab on a post said, Portage Road to Fort McPherson, a road which is not even a trail, but which crosses the most northerly of all the passes of the Rockies, within a hundred miles of the Arctic Ocean. Land, land, more land. It is the cry of the ages, more imperative and clamorous now than ever in the history of the world, and only arrested for the time by the cataclysm of the Great War. The earth is well nigh occupied now. Australia, New Zealand, Canada, even Africa, are colonization grounds. What will be the story of the world at the end of the Great War, none may predict. For the time, there will be more land left in Europe. But unbelievably soon the Great War will have been forgotten, and then the march of its people will be resumed towards such frontiers of the world as yet may remain. Land, land, more land. Always in America we have occupied the land as fast as it was feasible to do so. We have survived incredible hardships on the mining frontier, 
have lived through desperate social conditions in the cow country, have fought many of our bravest battles in the Indian country. Always it has been the frontier which has allured many of our boldest souls, and always, just back of the frontier, advancing, receding, crossing it this way and that, succeeding and failing, hoping and despairing, but steadily advancing in the net result has come that portion of the population which builds homes and lives in them, and which is not content with a blanket for a bed and the sky for a roof above. We had a frontier once. It was our most priceless possession. It has not been possible to eliminate from the blood of the American West, diluted though it has been by far less worthy strains, all the iron of the old home-bred frontiersmen. The frontier has been a lasting and ineradicable influence for the good of the United States. It was there we showed our fighting edge, our unconquerable resolution, our undying faith. There, for a time at least, we were Americans. We had our frontier. We shall do ill indeed if we forget and abandon its strong lessons, its great hopes, its splendid human dreams. And that concludes The Passing of the Frontier in its entirety by Emerson Howe. We certainly hope you enjoyed it. And we hope you got something constructive out of it. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Stories from the Old West. If you enjoyed this episode, please do send us a review. This is your host, Kevin Sykes, speaking on behalf of the 1001 Stories Network. Take care, and we'll be back soon with a brand new story. Mm-hmm.